Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. The date is March 23 at the time of recording of this episode. And in the last week, our world and the way we have known it has turned upside down. We're talking about coronavirus or COVID-19, to use the appropriate terminology. Currently in the U.S., we have about 42,700 identified cases with 541 deaths. Compare this number to last week when there were 4,400 cases and 75 deaths. And a week before that, it was 566 cases with 22 deaths. This looks as ominous as what happened in China when the numbers of infected cases went from 549 in January to more than 80,000 cases by the beginning of March. In Italy, the onslaught started with 155 cases at the end of February, with a few deaths, to more than 59,000 cases today, with up to 5,476 deaths. And it's rising at an exponential rate. This is not necessarily the case in all countries. In Singapore and in South Korea, for example, the pattern was very different, and it's attributed to early measures such as uh, screening for people with fever or flu-like symptoms, banning large gatherings, directing people to work from home, and encouraging social distancing. And after six weeks, they were able to curb the spread of this virus. Now, there's evidence that our response how quickly and extensively we institute public health measures could mean the difference between minimal additions to uncontrollable spread of this disease. We're already late, both at the community and national levels. The U.S. intelligence agencies were issuing ominous classified warnings in January and February this year about the global danger posed by the coronavirus. Yet we didn't start taking this virus seriously until mid-February. But even then, it was only talk, and maybe some mediocre local measures, but no major movement to mobilize tools and equipment for patients and for healthcare workers, and no decisive preventive measures at the community level. But what is missed in all of this is what will possibly happen to our first line of defense, the healthcare community. We get a glimpse of this from the work of Dr. Marcello Natali, a 57-year-old Italian general practitioner who was involved in the pandemic during its initial phase in the Italian region of Codonio. He took care of some of the first patients suffering from COVID-19 and never left the front lines. Marcello vigorously spoke about a devastating medical supply shortage, saying he'd been forced to treat coronavirus patients without gloves and masks. He begged for faster implementation of the necessary public health measures and provisions of much greater resources earlier for healthcare providers. In February, unfortunately, he started experiencing the first symptoms of this infection. He had a fever and muscle pain. Over the next couple of weeks, he started experiencing a cough and the fever got worse and then shortness of breath developed, but he refused to go to the hospital so that he would not take time away from other patients. But ultimately, he had to get intensive care he desperately needed after his symptoms overwhelmed him. And on Thursday, March 19, 2020, 
Dr. Natali finally succumbed to his symptoms and passed away. The data coming from Codonio has been consistent with Dr. Natali's predictions. Healthcare workers have been devastated. In fact, more than 2,600 healthcare workers have been infected by coronavirus since the onset of the outbreak in February, representing 8.3% of total cases in Italy. There's a lot we can learn from the experience of our healthcare workers around the world and implement necessary measures urgently. In this episode, we sat down with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Shinkai Hakimi, who is a pulmonary critical care doctor in Monterey Bay, California. She has a special interest in public health, has worked extensively towards healthcare for refugees, and is one of the most knowledgeable physicians we know. She's on the front lines and knows firsthand the trajectory of the disease here and in other countries and how it is evolving. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Shinkai, we're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and being here with us. We know that this is a challenging time for all of us um, physicians who are seeing this pandemic and who are uh, seeing patients in the hospital setting and um, trying to learn more and more. I feel like I actually have to put a timestamp on this uh, podcast because this is such an ever-evolving process. So today is. is Monday, March 23rd of 2020, and we're sitting here at home with Dr. Shinkai Hakimi joining us to speak about uh, her experiences. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Aisha and Dean. Thank you so much for having me here. It's our pleasure. We really wanted to get a sense from a doctor who actually is on the front line of this battle in the ICU and in the community as you know and and seeing the evolving picture both nationally, internationally, and then locally. We ourselves work in the hospital and in many ways we're all been we've all been asked to join the ICU fight. Uh, we've all volunteered to be part of the um, unit if need be. And, and it appears that we're going that direction, but you're in there every day and we wanted to get your perspective and your knowledge given that besides being an ICU physician, you're also fairly knowledgeable about this uh, topic and uh, the audience would love to know. Yeah, so I think it would make sense to start just uh, to give a, a background of, of what we're dealing with right now. Yeah, absolutely. So the virus that we're hearing all over the news is called COVID-19. And that is actually a coronavirus. There are multiple coronaviruses. And we actually discovered coronaviruses back in the 1960s. And they're widespread in humans and animals. And most are non-pathogenic, so they can just cause a common cold. That's about 10% of the coronaviruses can cause about a common cold in humans. But there are a couple highly pathogenic strains. So I'm sure you guys have remembered the SARS epidemic back in 2002, and that was a coronavirus. In addition to the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which was called MERS, and that was back in 2012. And so this particular coronavirus, COVID-19, um, just to give you a little bit of history of how it was discovered and how it sort of spread like wildfire right. throughout the world. So it first started in Wuhan, China. And so Wuhan, China is a population of about 11 million people. 
And they had first reported three cases to the WHO back in December, end of December. They actually thought maybe they were having cases back in November of 2019, but the official reported cases were in end of December to the WHO. And what the doctors noticed in the hospital were these SARS-like pneumonia, an isolated family in the hospital. So that was December 27th, 2019. And then December 31st, 2019, China issued a public health alert. January 1st, they closed all the sea markets. January 7th, they were able to isolate the virus and sequence it. January 23rd was complete shutdown of Wuhan. And so within those three months, they had diagnosed 110,000 positive cases and they had 3,800 deaths in three months. Wow. And so, I mean, it, it spread rapidly. And so... From there, as you've heard in the news, the hot spots of where it spread, China, South Korea, in the Middle East, the hotbed, the epicenter is in Iran, and then it went to Europe, Italy, and now the Americas. Yeah, it's uh, bewildering how fast this spread. And I think one of the most uh, surprising and challenging things were the fact that we were not ready for this. And we've heard this, you know, uh, shown in different settings and doctors and hospitals not being ready for this, not having enough resources. And and that's one of the reasons why it's affecting us so rapidly. It's We knew about this I mean, in many ways in December. And the message actually from the CIA report, which is actually ironically a very accurate source of information, as you would think, yeah, oh. about uh, health, about uh, financial structures throughout the world. It comes out regularly. The message had come to the United States that in, in early January, actually end of December, that we have a fast evolving epidemic and we have to be prepared for it. But nothing was done. Yeah. Again, we're going forward in this conversation. Nothing is political, but there are public health implications that we have to talk about that has global implications, both politically, whatever your whatever your inclinations are. And we are a global world. Everything we happens in China and in India and in Russia and Ukraine is going to affect us both health-wise and financially. This speaks to that more than anything else. So one of the things that I wanted to kind of highlight, and I uh, would love your input as well, is that if we're not connected nationally and internationally when it comes to public health information and with, with actionable processes that can adapt quickly, one of these epidemics, hopefully not this one, can wipe out entire civilizations. Right. So that's the kind of uh, sense of urgency that we have to speak to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, China is an example of, you know, what can happen within three months, how rapidly it can spread. And the importance is in this situation, yes, our, our government knew, a lot of governments probably knew that there was something starting in the East and it was, it was going to spread rapidly. But I think that the important issue at this point is being transparent and being able to share data and learn from other countries' examples. Because you look at how China had reacted to the situation. They implemented very severe draconian laws. 
to try to really stamp out the epidemic. And it worked. I'm not saying that, you know, every country should adopt that. But then you look at countries like Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't resort to the drastic shutdown that China had implemented amongst their citizens, which was completely shutting down every single business. They kept the healthcare workers. They wouldn't allow them to go home. They kept them in a separate area and they had a curfew. But, you know, they didn't do that when you look at Hong Kong and Singapore. They use different types of population measures, which is one of them was social distancing, which drastically reduced the spread of the virus. And as we know, that phrase word flattened the curve um, of the dissemination. So I think in this situation, we need to rely on scientists, universities, academic centers that are doing research at the moment. I mean, there are new papers coming out every day and we're sharing it amongst our colleagues and being able to be transparent and being able to share information easily and having access to that. That's going to be important for us to move forward and try to mitigate this the spread. Absolutely. Uh, having done clinical trials uh, there was a time that we had these blunt, big models where you would spend millions of dollars on 500 people or 1,000 people over 20 years, or, or if it's a, a randomized clinical trial, much shorter. But you would have to wait for one study to come up with an outcome. That's not going to work. You have to have smaller, adaptive, quasi-experiments going on in different populations at each, and then have access to each of these databases where scientists, unbiased, un, you know, without any proclivity and uh, political tinge or bias in any direction can work together across borders and distill data that's actionable. That's the most important thing in our, I think, the most important thing we can learn from this and the most important way of thinking going forward, a reason and database-driven way of adapting to life. Maybe that's what this thing will push us into. Right. Yeah, I hope so. Shinkai, you're a pulmonary critical care specialist, so you work in the ICU. So you're the first in line to see cases of COVID-19. Tell us what you're seeing on the ground in the hospital settings. Well, just to kind of go back and give a background of how this virus is spread. So it is transmitted through droplets. So when people talk, when people sneeze, when people cough, and that's why most countries have implemented this six feet away social distancing uh, measure. But that's really how what we've noticed through droplet uh, spread. Not so much spreading through surfaces. Yes, it can. The New England Journal paper that came out last week talked about different surfaces. But again, that was a test. That was a study done in a lab. But what we're seeing on the ground is from the hundreds and thousands of cases, it, it wasn't that someone had touched a surface or something. It was just that they were in proximity and it was through droplets, you know, whether they touched their face or their eyes, not so much aerosolized. I know everyone is kind of freaking out about having an N95 mask and now we're having shortages in the hospital because of that. And even within my own hospital. Right. But I I think that, you know, people really need to understand that this is droplet spread. So having good hand hygiene, really maintaining that socially distant six feet away measure, these public health measures that were implemented even back in, you know, 1918 with the Spanish flu, these are effective and people need to abide by them. Excellent. So... 
for me, this town, our town shut down. Um, it didn't, they implemented the shelter in place about a week ago now. I see a lot of fear. I live in a town where the population is an older population. It's, it's a large retirement community. Just for audience sake, it's a, the town is Carmel, right? Carmel, California. Right. Yeah. I'm living yeah, in Carmel and my hospital is in Monterey. So just the Monterey Bay area, it's Peninsula, uh, Pacific Grove, Carmel and Monterey. And so it is an older population. And so we did start implementing the measures. I'm sure your hospital, they, we have a respiratory area outside of the ER. There's tents out there where yes. patients that have respiratory issues come, can go into the tent and first be evaluated. In terms of the testing capability within my county, I'm sure it's similar to within your counties. We have limited tests. And that's the bottleneck in this situation is the ability to be able to test people and knowing that if they are positive, putting them in social isolation. You know, when we look at countries like Hong Kong, for example, in terms of the amount of testing capability that they have, they have 5,000 tests per 1 million people. Wow. Doesn't sound like a lot, but 5,000 tests per 1 million people. You look at the United States. We have 100 tests per a million people. Wow, so, that's that's scary. Yeah, yeah. And so now, I mean, just, you know, within a few days, there's new data coming out, new companies coming out, being able to provide more rapid testing. In term, For my community, our test comes back within 12 hours. It depends on when you submit the test. You can get it back within four to six hours, but if it's after the time that the courier doesn't pick it up, then you get it the next day. And this is where our governments can come in to help because within our public health department, we only have three people working there. There's one person that picks up the tests at a certain time, and then there's only a certain amount of people that can run the tests. So we need to establish some measures to be able to test people on a broader scale, faster and more effectively. And in your town, you said you had how many cases, 11 cases so far? Yeah, in Monterey County, as of yesterday, this might have changed today, but as of yesterday, March 22nd, uh, we had 11 positive cases and one death. Wow. And are they presenting with the typical symptoms that have been, you know, talked about and have been disseminated, such as high fever, cough, and shortness of breath? Is that the typical symptoms? For the most part, yes. They are presenting with high fever, a feeling of like cold-like symptoms initially, and then developing a rapid fever. Usually the latency period from what we're seeing is within about seven to nine days. And so the scary thing is, is that you can actually, there's two phases of the disease, the early phase and a late phase. And so, you know, right about day nine is when you start developing symptoms. So you have a full nine days that you are feeling okay and that you could easily, you know, transmit the virus to somebody else. And so that's the worrisome thing because we have, what we're noticing is that there can be a huge population of asymptomatic people out there. You know, the data shows that what we see uh, almost 80, up to 80% can actually contract this virus. Not mm. everyone is going to get sick from it, but there's going to be a huge amount of asymptomatic uh, people just walking around. And that's the importance of being able to have the availability of testing a huge number of people. 
uh, there seems to be some uh, inconsistencies in data coming out. I mean, today, Governor Cuomo had a great talk and he was talking about the fact that the majority of population that's at risk are older and have some chronic diseases. And uh, I would love to hear your input on that. But at the same time, we're hearing that there's actually a significant number of young people. And that distribution is not consistent from country to country and even from region to region. There's a lot of inconsistencies that seem to be driven by other factors as well, some of them which we probably don't know or won't know for a while. Can you give us a little perspective of that distribution and inconsistency? Yeah, so the data that we have right now is coming out of China. From what we're hearing from France and other countries, there are more case reports, so I can't comment too much on that. But in terms of the hard data that's coming out, we're getting most of them from China. And as I, as far as I know, for, as of last week, in terms of the fatality rate, and it differs between countries. So the fatality rate in China from this virus was up to 3.8%. In Italy, it was up to 7.2%. Why so high in Italy? Because, yes, in Italy, they have the oldest population in Europe is in Italy. So from the data from China and Italy, what we are seeing is that older age is a large risk factor. Men are at higher risk compared to women. Patients with cardiopulmonary disease, so patients with asthma or any sort of pulmonary disease, patients with hypertension, coronary disease, they are at higher risk. Patients with diabetes, patients with cancer, these are the red flags that they're at higher risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, we see a lot of elderly people in our clinic setting and in the hospital as well. And it's quite clear that the population that gets affected are, are them. But you're right. So there are there are cases where younger people are being affected. I don't have the data in terms of the mortality rate of patients under the age of 60, right. unless it came out today, but I just don't have that. But yeah, right. um, we are hearing stories of patients in Washington, patients in Seattle, Washington, patients in New York, that we have young people in the hospital. We also have cases of physicians, young, healthy physicians that are in the hospital because of this. Yeah, it's such a fast evolving concept. And I'm, I'm happy that we have social media and people have access to the latest data. Not very happy about some of the misinformation that is also being spread. But uh, it's, that's why it's important to go to the right source. So, you know, CDC, WHO, the JAMA network has been posting some really nice public health information that's easily understandable, palatable for the general population. In any case, let's move on to your personal experience in the hospital setting. How are you guys doing as far as protection and providing the right kind of resources for healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, and all these individuals who are in close contact with patients? So within our hospital, as in every hospital in the United States, we do have a shortage of N95 masks. And I can't make a blanket statement to say that, you know, we don't need N95 masks for anybody because this is such an unprecedented time, unprecedented time that we're all living in. And it's scary as physicians to go and put yourself at risk. And then, you know, who you're going to bring that home to, whether it's, you know, your children or your significant other. And so relying on the hospitals to provide you with the effective safety equipment um, necessary to do your job is something that we didn't think about, you know, 
two months ago. Yeah. We just sort of expected, yes, of course, we, we should have that. And so we're seeing that that's not available. You know, recently, I actually just got an email from my hospital because they are running low of N95 masks that they are asking us to, ex- what they call it is extended use. And so essentially, you know, it's not like you're taking it out and taking it on and off and, but you just keep it on and you're able to see patient to patient until your mask is, the integrity of it is compromised or then uh, you can take it off and get a new one. But because the supplies are so limited, they're asking us to just keep the mask on essentially all day if we're seeing multiple potential or suspected cases or positive cases. Um, In in terms of our hospital, and like most hospitals around the country, we're all getting prepared. So we have stopped all elective surgeries to Mm -hmm. be able to have room in case we need more potential ICU beds uh, for patients. So we've stopped all elective surgeries. We have designated sort of a group of people to be available or and see these patients sort of like a team of respiratory therapists or nurses that will only be able to see these patients. So it minimizes the transmission and risk of exposure to other people. This is the scary thing, finding ICU beds. My right. hospital in particular has about 21 ICU beds. And the data in terms of just to give people an idea of of where we stand in terms of the United States and how many ICU beds there are in the U.S., there's approximately 100,000 100, ICU beds in the United States. And so when you actually look at the numbers, so there's about 327 million people in the United States alone. And if we say that the infection rate is between 30 to 80 percent, let's just take the lowest percentage. Let's just say we got lucky and only 30 percent of Americans got infected. That's that's 98 million people. And so of that 30 percent, about three to five percent will require ICU level of care. So let's say 3%. That's about 3 million people needing ICU level of care for 100,000 beds. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's scary. The system will get overwhelmed rapidly. I mean, the numbers we were hearing from New York, which is actually the epicenter now, uh, 20,000 cases today compared to 8,000 in, in California and 8,000 in Washington, and it's growing rapidly there. Their hospital beds are already overwhelmed. And they're thinking twice or three times the number of ICU beds in the next few weeks. And we don't have the ability to adapt that quickly. No, no. And I'm just saying ICU level beds, not even hospital beds. And I think that this is where a lot of Americans don't understand that concept. And it's not something that we talk about, you know, most people don't know how many ICU beds we have, but it's, and it's not that, yes, you know, if you get it, most likely you will be fine. But like you said, it's a matter of overwhelming the system. We do not have the capability to handle the influx that will come in. This makes sense. In fact, a lot of people keep hearing the flattening the curve and they have no idea what that means. This is where actually that comes into play. Flattening the curve means we're going to get infected, but we're going to distribute it over time. And hopefully the the tail end of the curve will be cut off if it's seasonal. And how do you do this flattening of the curve means that if you're far enough from each other, the likelihood of spreading 
is going to be lower. Not that you're going to eliminate it, but it's going to be lower. And therefore the curve, that peak is not gonna climb rapidly and overwhelm the healthcare system. By the way, overwhelming the healthcare system means everybody who's above that peak. Now by your numbers, by your conservative numbers, if we have 100,000 ICU beds and we need 3 million, that means that even if we rev it up to twice as much, we have over 2 million people that will die. That's the most conservative numbers. Uh, am, I, am I right with, uh, with that calculation? Uh, if we don't address that peak. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to learn from history. I mean, the same situation happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And you look at two specific cities and there's a JAMA paper on it. And it's the same thing about flattening the curve. And they, they did a study on St. Louis and they compared it to Philadelphia. When the Spanish flu hit St. Louis, took severe population measures in terms of shutting everything down, social distancing, and they were able to reduce their cases tremendously. Philadelphia ended up having a parade because I think it was right before World War II, ended up having a parade. And I mean, within a matter of days, their hospitals were overwhelmed and thousands of people died. So there are specific response tools that we can do individually that the public health, our public health colleagues recommend. And And there's about eight broad response tools that we work on. And so the first one is isolating the positive cases. So, Mm -hmm. and that's, again, the importance of having the ability to test on a broad and rapid scale, because once we know the patients that are positive, we can put them in their own self-quarantine. And then number two, quarantining for contacts of those positive cases, being able to quarantine them. Number three, infection control. And so infection control within the hospital, um, healthcare workers, as well as patients. And that's, again, hand washing, not reusing materials, um, just kind of common sense things, I guess that right. I would I would say. And then public education. So again, respiratory hygiene, hand washing. And then there's population measures that um, communities are taking. This is what we see now is social distancing, community event cancellation, widespread community quarantine, which is shelter in place, which now all of California is essentially now shelter in place. And then, That's right. and then the drastic one that countries are doing now are border closures. Absolutely. I mean, it kind of angers me to see videos in Florida during spring break, all these young people, you know, together uh, by the thousands, potential, I mean, it's not potential, they're definitely spreading the germ. And of course, young people, look at me talking young people, but (laughs) (laughs) you're aging yourself here, okay? Younger people uh, feeling immortal (laughs) and not knowing that it's not just about themselves, although there, there are cases now of young people getting the disease and getting pretty sick, you might, scarring of lung and all, but you are the source of the spread. Right. You are the source of the spread to those who are vulnerable. And, and vulnerable doesn't just mean older, although that's a bigger population. Those who have one or two or three chronic diseases are at much greater risk. So people have to really take this seriously. And at some point it has to be a governmental move. And I know that there are people scared of this opening up the door for, yeah, <laughs> there are Marshall. so many conspiracy theories yeah. there and, and some of it may not be conspiracy, who knows, that this opens up the door to totalitarian governments and so on and so forth. Well, that may as it be, there's nothing more deadly that we have to face right now than the virus itself, which can kill 
millions of people. Yeah, but I think that there is hope because when you look at countries, at least from the data that we have of Hong Kong and Singapore, they didn't resort to these drastic militaristic type of tactics to shut everything down and penalize everyone, you know, but what they did do was implement early measures. So they did early isolation. They did have the ability to be able to test people on a broad scale and be able to get those tests back rapidly. In terms of Hong Kong, after about six weeks, they were able to, um, they're now opening up their businesses. Some of their, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're getting back to normal life and that's within six weeks. So I think that there is hope. I mean, I hope we don't have to resort to these, you know, more severe measures like they did in China and what I'm now seeing in the Philippines. Again, the world is changing. The world is not going to be the same after this, after this um, epidemic, once we get through this. Um, But I think that, like you said, we need to have a sense of responsibility and a sense of accountability because it's, it's kind of strange, right? How this tiny little microscopic virus that we, we can't see is literally bringing the world to its knees and making it stop. It's not wars. It's, it's a, it's a virus. And so we really need to evaluate how we interact with each other. You know, we can be fearful of each other, but I don't think that that gets us anywhere. But I think that hopefully this will instill a sense of responsibility for your neighbor, for your community and being able to do the right thing, being transparent like other countries, sharing information, you know, without getting the data from China and Italy and and from Europe, we wouldn't be able to implement some of the therapies that we are now doing that we see are positive. I know in the news, hydroxychloroquine sort of blew up and now everyone's excited about that. And I'm sure we'll get to the treatment therapies. But one of the things not to do is empty the pharmacies of hydroxychloroquine because now Mm. we have a shortage and patients with, you know, uh, lupus or rheumatoid arthritis are not able to get these medications. And so I think instead of jumping on the next best thing, we need to sit patiently, follow these public health measures, rely on science and data and testing to show what's really working and what's what's not working. Yeah, we, we definitely yeah. believe in models, new models of research. I mean, uh, I'm glad that maybe that's another thing that's going to come out of this. And uh, the, the beauty of the United States or many of the countries that deal in the same political structure is the states actually are separate entities that they actually model both economic, health, and other models in their own little borders. And if you test out different kind of models in different states, fairly quickly, you'll get a really good sampling of what works. You know, just jumping on a hydrochloroquine or chloroquines, uh, which are anecdotal at best, that came from, I believe, a French study that had no controls, small sample, and the numbers were impressive, but again, they were just anecdotal. And by the way, even the data wasn't captured very cleanly. To jump to a national policy is not inconsequential because that redirects attention, which is the most important thing we have right now, and redirects finances, which is limited right now. Although it seems like we all of a sudden find trillions here and there. I wish yeah, some of that trillions <laughs> would come uh, to our research. But in any case, 
that's consequential. So the models should be what they are, models. And more of them should be tried out. And more of them should be scaled out quickly. And FDA should become much more fa- you know, fluid and speedy in its uh, transitions uh, and processes. We can skip animal models at times. And, and that's actually, that's what exactly happened with the antibody against this virus. So yeah, that's the beauty of what's happening right now is some forced, <laughs> forced social evolution uh, by the least evolved of all organisms. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And I think it's important that we need to continue to practice evidence-based medicine. We need to stay focused on the data and what we actually know instead of getting easily distracted about, you know, a magic bullet. And so it's sort of what's happening with hydroxychloroquine is the same thing that happened with the toilet paper situation yeah. in the in the grocery stores. So we can't just jump on it because, yes, like you said, it, it was a very small study. It was not a good study. Are we using it in these cases? Yes, we actually are. But they are reserved for patients that are in the ICU that meet the criteria of moderate to severe disease. And so, you know, because it's it's also not a benign drug either. Yeah. Yes. True. So, yeah. you know, it's That's not true. like a vitamin that you just take. And so for physicians that are prescribing their outpatients this medication to take prophylactically, I think is a disservice. I agree. I agree. Or at times of stress and times of desperation, the first group that actually has the greatest access to the population are the the charlatans, the people that have to sell them something. They're good. They're smart. That's the whole nature of charlatanism. They're, they're not dummies. And all of a sudden, everything comes out of the closet from the newest, you know, vitamin concoction to some magic pill or, uh, you know, or as simple as instead of going to the hospital, taking the grandma soup, you know, everything has its place, but it's critical to know what's real and what's not. And it becomes very difficult under desperate situations. And so people have to be aware and we all have to speak the same language. I love the fact that you you highlighted this, which is data-driven, evidence-driven care. And that should come to the general population. One of the things we try to do is kind of speak about things like validity. What is validity? Validity is, is this thing truly what it's purporting to be. And is it truly making the difference? You know, uh, biases and anecdotal data. And we're going to see anecdotal as this becomes worse. And it appears that it is going to become worse, and especially in certain regions. People are going to get desperate. And those who are f- there to fill the gap will fill the gap with uh, junk science and pseudoscience and, and play around people's hopes. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, to be honest, for me, that's most worrisome because yeah. that's going to affect even our treatments. Absolutely. We need data. We need people to speak to this that know what they're talking about. So that's why we love the data part that you're presenting. And during these times, everybody goes into survival mode. Um, And when you're in survival mode, you you try to grab onto anything that's in front of you that provides, you know, quote unquote, therapy. And it's so sad to see the social media being saturated with just trash information about you know, potential therapies. And um, I know Dean and I have been busy answering a lot of questions and, you know, highlighting some of the things that were completely false, but it's it's difficult to control it. So I hope people resort to evidence-based medicine. Recently, a very famous social influencer, a supermodel, which is nowadays the equivalent to a doctor, uh, <laughs> put up this guy who sees cures in his dreams or 
premonitions come to him. And he said, celery juice cures, and, and I have nothing against celery juice. And I'm, I'm a, you know, I wish celery juice is actually love. one of the different concoctions yeah, that he has it. for it. And, and, and by the way, we got blocked in, by, <laughs> by the page. We've been blocked. Yeah, That's been fantastic. Blocked, so We're I don't get know what's going on with him. And we are not against it. It's probably very good for you, very good for you. But to even if he's hinting that it's good for you in the viral situation, it's not a benign statement because you're taking attention away from where it needs to be pointed to. And there's going to be a lot of those celery juices and beet juices and no juice or even a whole food plant-based diet, which we strongly purport is going to make you healthier, but it's not going to make you, uh, you know, immune against the virus. Yeah, we it, have builds, to be very it builds your immunity. It yes. keeps you healthy, but yes. it won't protect you from the virus per se. Correct. Absolutely. I think that's the important information that people need to be able to differentiate. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's understandable, right? That people, like you said, get into that survival mode and and people can easily resort to fear-based thinking. I mean, I do that too when I go to the grocery store and I see the counters and the aisles are all empty. I mean, my adrenaline kicks up a little bit and I, I'm like, well, maybe I should be buying, you know, all of the cans of beans or something like that. <laughs> but I think that it's really important. That's the importance of us being able to trust, you know, the scientists that are leading the way. I mean, now more than ever is when and we actually need science and data. And this is the one thing that we can truly hold on to as we go forward. And, you know, unfortunately, it will get worse before it gets better, but it's going to get better. And if we fall, I mean, we've been through this. We have been through this, you know, with the Spanish flu and we got out of it. And so if we follow these population measures that each of our institutions and our communities are implementing, I think we're going to be fine. What we're seeing now, the data that's coming out of China, I mean, they're slowly reopening their country as well. It is promising. Um, and when we look actually at some parts of Italy that implemented the population measures early on, as opposed to the north, and they had implemented the early interventions in terms of shelter in place and social distancing. Um, they haven't seen an increase in cases. So it is promising. I mean, this is not all gloom and doom. I just think that we need to be patient. Yeah. Yeah, I love your perspective. No, yeah, that's absolutely I, true. I, I definitely agree with that. At the same time, I think we have to be aware of uh, our evolving relationship with uh, these viruses and the bacteria and resistant bacteria and things of that nature. I hope that this just doesn't stay around COVID-19, that it actually expands our thinking about viruses in general, bacteria in general, why are we getting resistant bacteria? And we'll speak to that uh, separately. And why are we getting more viruses? And, and, and the fact that some of the viruses, they're not the same. They have greater virulence. That means that they infect, their infectivity is higher. They have better ability to trans be transmitted, meaning that they're not just aerosol, but some of them can actually go further out. So imagine if you have a virus that is highly virulent, as well as a better vector of transmission, or better for the virus, not for us, a better vector of transmission, the numbers can become profoundly worse rapidly. And, and as species, we can't become arrogant. We've been here, you know, the, we saw... Uh, in the 24 hours of this planet, we just came in the last second or so, or last few seconds or so, uh, we can go away just like other 99% of the species. We can't become very arrogant. And this is a learning time 
but I hope that people open up their learning beyond just this virus, but actually to the source and how we are actually interacting as nations and how we are interacting with the greater world and uh, you know how our abuse of the world and our relation with the world is also contributing to this. Everybody's in their silos, even the scientists in their little silos. And there has to be a generalist in all this. You know, In medicine, we talk about this. There has to be a, some generalist leading the policies, not everybody in their own little, you know, the seven blind men and the elephant concept. We have to have somebody that sees the whole elephant. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And like I said earlier, I really don't think that the world will be the same after this and that we will change our ways. But the question is, how will we change our ways? Will we adopt more of an isolationist type of policy or will be more open? And from what we're seeing, at least amongst the scientific community, is what works is if we are more open and transparent with each other, because that's how we progress. I mean, within six to eight months, we will have a vaccine for this. That's unheard of. Usually vaccines can take years to be able to develop in terms of testing. And and so for us to be able to do this within six to eight months, we're not able to do this by ourselves. And we're getting help from our colleagues from China, from Europe, from Italy, from France. And so, again, it's... And this goes beyond medicine, but it will change the course of our lives. And so it's a matter of how we as a population, as a community, as a world, decide which route to take. It's sort of like a choose your own adventure. (laughs) Which paths do you want to take? Absolutely. Now, coming from the bigger perspective to a personal perspective, how are you doing? And how, you know, how has this changed your routine and your life? And let's talk a little bit about all the burden that physicians and healthcare professionals are experiencing nowadays. Well, I have to say it does worry me and I do get stressed. You know, the things that keep me up at night, <laughs> per se, you know, people that, like you just said, are not respecting this, the whole population measures that we're taking, which is the shelter in place and social distancing. It worries me because I know, at least within my small little community hospital, we do not have the capacity to take care of all of these patients at once. You know, we only have 20 beds in our intensive care unit and potentially more now that we've opened up the PACU in other areas. But there are only six pulmonary critical care doctors within our little community. And like within your community, we have or we will be recruiting other physicians that have ICU experience to come help us out. And so, you know, it hasn't hit us in terms of the amount of patients that we're getting. And I think we're about a week to 10 days behind. So maybe Mm -hmm. talk to me in 10 days and I'll tell you how I feel. Because right now we're sort of, we're in that anticipation mode and that, you know, getting ready and slightly fearful. It's sort of like watching this wave. Like, I guess I surf now. So I'm like, it's like you're watching this big wave and it's like, oh gosh, are we going to like ride it? Or is it just going to, is it just going to come on top of us? and bury us. And so that's what we're worried about. You and I have been talking over the phone and texting each other during this madness. And um, I know that you haven't seen your your parents and you've completely isolated yourself. And the same here. I mean, we have two kids and my mom stays with us. So it's almost, a you know, we go through the gymnastics of how 
We take off our clothes outside, put in a plastic bag, come in, not touch anything, get in the shower, disinfect, and then come out and just, you know, be a normal parent and, and an individual in the household. It's very stressful. And you were telling me about some doctors that have gone through some drastic measures to keep their families safe. Yeah. I mean, there are physicians that have actually moved out of their house and they're living in the garage or they're living in, um, they have like a little studio outside just so out of fear because they have young kids in their house and they don't want to spread it to their family members. I've heard some stories just from nurses in the hospital where they actually, they're within their group of friends and family. No one wants to hang out with them. So it's sometimes we've become yes. like a pariah as well that, you know, because we are exposed. And yeah. so don't quote me on this, but I did hear in terms of the transmission rate amongst healthcare providers, I did hear that providers have a higher rate of contracting these diseases. And so in terms of the SARS epidemic, there was a higher percentage of uh, healthcare workers that contracted SARS compared to the normal population. And there some theories behind it is, you know, because we are in a stressful environment, our cortisol levels are higher, which suppress our immune system. And so, yes, I mean, I, as healthcare providers, we're all worried, you know, and these are the things that keep us up at night, not being able to have the supplies that we need, the N95 masks, you know, having to now you do the extended use of them. And so... It gets worrisome or when you're, yeah. when I'm intubating a patient, you know, worrying, oh, you know, does this patient, could this patient have COVID-19? Because putting on that whole, the whole gear, it takes a few minutes. It takes like four to Absolutely. five minutes to get that on. So you have to make a decision when that patient is coding, you know, are you going to put that on and take your time within those four minutes to be able to do that properly while your patient is having a respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest and you can't go in the room? So that's heartbreaking. It really is. It really uh, is. Yeah. Some of the data from the physician side in Italy was uh, kind of scary. In, in uh, Cadona, about 110 of the 600 physicians were infected. Well, 110 of the 600. I mean, that's just bewildering. Around 8.3% of the cases were healthcare workers in Italy. Of the 41,000 coronavirus cases, 8.3% were healthcare workers. That just is incredibly scary. Yeah. So, and, and because of exposure, I mean, we try to, and that brings on the role of the government. We hear all these talks every day from the politicians. Uh, that's wonderful. It's great that you come on TV and repeat the same stuff. But if the supplies are not coming to the physicians, you're killing physicians, period. I mean, it cannot be an es esoteric experience and it cannot be a, you know, a talking to the media. It's lives that are dependent. Physicians, nurses, the ones that deal with patients the most, their lives are dependent on this. If the government's not doing everything possible to get us the supplies, uh, both at the state level and at the uh, uh, national level, you're killing physicians and healthcare providers uh, across the board. I mean, we're not talking about a few. If 8.3% is right, and in New York, 20,000 cases, and now let's extrapolate that two, two weeks from now, nationally, even if it's 5% healthcare providers, 
the death rate among healthcare providers, which is the first line in this, is going to be massive, which could have been avoided by universal availability of uh, N95, universal availability of gloves and utilities and material everywhere, the support that the physicians and healthcare providers need. That's first and foremost. And some talking points are not going to make that go away. What's going to make that go away is supplies and national effort, the kind that was put in during World War II. We're fighting. We're fighting the same level of, of a fight. Even if it's an over-exaggerated fight, we're going to learn something from this because these viral infections are not going to go away. We've had more of them in the last few years. It's not a matter of the fact that we didn't detect them earlier. No, we've had more of them more recently uh, because of population growth, because of what we're doing with antibiotic and our relationship with the world. And we'll leave that aside for now. But at least the governments have to be extremely proactive and politicians can't do the same things politicians do all the time, just talk. Uh, they have to get the resources immediately ahead. And US, this should have been done in January. Those two months are not just two months. There are thousands of lives lost. So that's why it's, uh, I want to make sure that we get that message out, that your life, your ICU doc, who's right there in the front line, Aisha and I, especially Aisha, who's a stroke specialist, and now she's going to be in ICU more often, and all of us are going to be in the front line. And then when we care about the amazing nurses, and the pulmonologists, the respiratory and, and, uh, therapists, uh, physical therapists, and pulmonary therapists, all those people in front line, they need equipment right now, no talking points. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I hope that the message gets spread and I hope that um, the general population listening to this podcast and to you know, your experiences understand the importance of staying at home, social distancing, all of us doing whatever we can to reduce the burden of this disease and helping us, us healthcare professionals in the hospitals to reduce the numbers as much as possible. Well, Shinkai... Thank you so much for your time. This was so important to do and you took uh, some time off of your busy schedule. We appreciate you. Good luck. Please be safe. Yeah. And uh, we you. all need to be connected. We're going to do this together. I just want to add because I, I don't want to end on like a sad note because I really wanted to emphasize <laughs> that there is the light there and we do see promising results, like I said, coming out of China and countries like Hong Kong and Singapore that did take these population measures seriously, that now within a matter of a few weeks, they're going back to their normal lives. So I know it's it seems kind of dark right now, but we're going to come out of this and we're going to come out of this stronger and we're going to be able to, I think, communicate more transparently from one another because I think this is what we're seeing. This is what helps sharing data, being transparent, being supportive of one another. I can't tell you how many emails and texts that I've gotten just from friends and family and people that I haven't even connected with in years just saying, hey, thinking of you, I hope you're well, I know you're on the front lines. So it's really heartening to see that the community community and everyone. I mean, despite what the government has, their lack of involvement the last couple of months, but I really see there's a huge community effort within at least my community. And I'm sure it is within you, yours that we're all really are banding together and supporting one another to get through this. So I think with that, that's going to be our drive to make it through this. So you're saying we're going to surf through that barrel yeah. into the sunlight. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I Good. love that. I love Good. that. 
Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, Shinkai. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and we will have many more amazing conversations like this one in the near future. But we want to make sure we get to our podcast family to help us in this battle. We would love four action items from all of you. Number one, follow the public health recommendations from CDC and WHO, which strongly suggest social distancing and universal hygiene measures like hand washing. Number two, don't go to the emergency room or urgent care or clinics for menial procedures or visits as they are already overwhelmed. And number three, please contact your local and national policymakers to get them to support whatever measure needed to get personal protection equipment for healthcare providers. And last but not the least, number four, please share this information with your loved ones and with whoever you think can use this information for their health and for the health of this planet. Thank you.